Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are, with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target, or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Hey everybody, I've got a spectacular one today. First time. As you know, it's rare that these podcasts are any good at all. Some, frankly, are just unlistenable. But today, not the case for a change. Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for Northern Alabama. The U.S. attorney is, of course, the federal prosecutor for a federal jurisdiction and Joyce's case for Northern Alabama. So mainly, of course, bestiality cases, about 85% of her cases during the eight years as U.S. attorney there in Alabama, mainly those cases. No, that's that's a joke, of course. Uh, lots of the same crimes that you might see in a more civilized area of the country, uh, white-collar crimes, corruption, extortion, conspiracy, RICO, when you've been a U.S. attorney for eight years, as Joyce was during the Obama administration, you've prosecuted a lot of horrible, horrible people, which brings us to Donald Trump and his friends and family. On the family side, we're going to take a look at Trump's vulnerabilities on his business side, uh, where both the Manhattan DA and the New York Attorney General appear to be closing in on him. And then, of course, there's the whole trying to steal the election side. There we have the January 6th House Committee looking at the, that end, of course, the Justice Department, which has just indicted the head of the Oath Keepers and 10 other Oath Keepers uh, for seditious conspiracy. And that should be not so hard to prove because their oath is, I will overthrow the government. And speaking of hard to prove, we also discussed Trump's call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where the Fulton County Georgia DA has uh, what Joyce considers a pretty strong case, you know, considering that the crime is right there on tape. But before we get to our first spectacular show, just want to catch uh, up on some on some voting rights. As you might have seen this past Thursday, Senator uh, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona took to the Senate floor and announced that she was for both the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act uh, to counter voter suppression and other dangerous election laws passed in a number of states like, oh, Georgia, Texas, Florida, and Arizona, but would not vote to reform the filibuster uh, in the Senate, thereby killing those two bills. 
The thing is, she said, was that we need the filibuster to ensure that there is consensus on issues so that we can make progress. Consensus, for example, between those who feel it is all well and good for state legislatures to make laws that make it harder for people of color and college students and poor people to vote. Between those people and the people who think the state legislatures shouldn't have the rights to create election laws that suppress the votes of those people or give state legislatures the right to overturn the results of elections. She thinks we need to build consensus between Republicans who overwhelmingly believe that Donald Trump won the election in a landslide and Democrats who believe that Joe Biden won the election fair and square. So that's what she thinks. And Senator Sinema felt it was just fine to do her speech just before the Democratic caucus lunch where Joe Biden was coming to make his case for modifying the filibuster, uh, which, by the way, has been done 160 times in the past. Uh, that showed a lot of moxie, I think, on Senator Sinema's part, a lot of moxie to undercut the president of the United States and the leader of your party on an issue of such magnitude class class act all the way oh uh she reportedly looked at her phone uh during the lunch texting and such uh while the president spoke but did look up when he mentioned her name so now on to joyce vance and a spectacular conversation you know for the very first time The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thrilled to have Joyce Vance uh, with me again. Last time, Joyce was with uh, Pre Parara, and this time uh, you're going solo, Joyce, from Birmingham, right? I'm in Birmingham. Yeah, we're, we're, and you were U.S. Attorney from Northern Alabama, 
Now, in in uh, Minnesota, we have only one U.S. attorney. Why does Alabama have two? Interesting story. Alabama actually has three, and it has nothing to do with the size of the state. I mean, there are some crazy ones. I think Oklahoma may have four. It has to do with what senators had power in 1850 when they divided the country up into federal districts and started naming U.S. attorneys and federal judges. Oh, I see. So I, I was assuming Raw politics. Wow, I kind of was assuming that that just you just need a lot of U.S. attorneys in Alabama from like the fifties and sixties uh, for civil rights stuff. But no, it's just from eight from the eighteen. <laughs> it's <laughs> completely raw, wrong. Raw party right? politics in the eighteen fifties. Okay, all right, all right. Um. You left that job. You're basically there for the all the Obama administration. Preet and I were both. We were in the first group of five U.S. attorneys who were confirmed during the Obama administration, and I resigned the night before Trump was inaugurated. Before he could fire you? <laughs> well, you know, it was this just funny feeling that I didn't want to work for Jeff Sessions, who seemed to be headed to the Justice Department, and that seemed like a really bad idea for me. Yeah, and did you did you know him pretty well being in Alabama there? Um, I've met him a time or two. Yeah, I got to know. <laughs> <laughs> he and I have very different views on the subject of immigration, so I felt like I would be a bad fit for a Justice Department. Well, he's got he the worst run. views on immigration. He's got Stephen Miller was his guy, right? That's right. Stephen Miller was his creation. So let, let, uh, today, I think we're going to try to talk about uh, uh, two topics. One is uh, Trump criminal liabilities in the state of New York, mm -hmm. and maybe also in Georgia, mm -hmm. which would be the Raffensburger. But in the state of New York, I'm thinking the uh, the AG of New York, right, and also the the uh, uh, Manhattan DA. You know, it's very interesting because the attorney general in New York is, in essence, running a parallel civil case to the criminal investigation oh, right. that's coming so out of Manhattan. And it, it's a, a very interesting dynamic in terms of what they can do. For instance, the New York attorney general previously put Trump's charitable foundation out of business. She has that ability in a civil case. So it's a, a real whammy potentially for Trump. Yeah, it, it, it was determined that was a criminal enterprise, right? I think, you know, I forget the, the name of the statute, but essentially it says, hey, if you're running your business or your charitable foundation in our state and you're doing it in a way that's disruptive and that harms our citizens, then we have the ability to, to shut you down. And that's exactly what happened with the charitable foundation. I also think Farenthold, David Farenthold from the Washington Post, mm -hmm. Uh, was on here and said it was actually determined to be a criminal enterprise. <laughs> His reporting has been really extraordinary in, in that regard. Okay, so we're going to do that. The, the, his vulnerabilities in in uh, both sides of that, New York, and I'm going to include this as sort of the hinge of these two subjects, which is uh, the Fulton County DA is yeah. looking at him for the Raffensburger. Phone conversation <laughs> in which he asked him to find 11,780 votes. One more 780, than 780. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, which was odd because he just he all he wanted was one more than he needed. I had some great cases with great evidence in my time as a prosecutor, but I don't think I ever had the defendant make a phone call and commit the crime on tape. And we'll uh, talk about that uh, more a little later in depth. Now, Merrick Garland uh, spoke last week, kind of trying to, I think, reassure everyone that he is going to go after everyone committed a crime, whether they were there on January 6th and whatever level they're at. And looking at what the January 6th commission is doing, uh, to me, it looks like all the evidence points to the most guilty person in all this is Donald Trump. But it seems like Meadows and a whole bunch of these guys were in on this. The question is, and, and uh, you actually uh, uh, contacted me, just wrote me a really nice email because I was on uh, about this on MSNBC. I-, I was very heartened by Garland's speech. As was I. Because he, he said, we're, I'm, I'm going to go after these guys, but I'm going to cross every T and dot every I. Because the thing is that if, if, he, went, if, if he convicts these guys, it's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court, right? Absolutely. I think you, you wrote a piece about this. You said, if you're going to shoot at the king, you best not miss. You know, that, apparently that's popularly attributed to the TV show The Wire. But from the time that I was hired in my <laughs> office, which is like a million years ago, so I'm not going to tell you when. That was something that I was always told. When you had a big case, you know, it didn't matter if it was public corruption or a drug case or human trafficking or what have you. Uh, when you were evaluating your evidence and getting close to indicting, some smart supervisor who'd been at the Justice Department forever would look at you and they would very sagely say, now, if you're going to shoot at the king, you best not miss, which meant you had to have your evidence lined up not just to convince the jury, right, but to satisfy at least the Court of Appeals and maybe the Supreme Court, too. You had to do it right. And that that man created the wire. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> um, popularizing that. But, you know, so, Al, there's something I think that gets lost here sometimes because prosecutors, we do this bad thing which is that we assume everybody knows what we know because it seems pretty obvious to us. I think everybody does that in their specialty. So prosecutors talk about starting at the bottom and moving up the chain. I'm sure you've heard that. And Garland spoke to that. about He, he talked about that. And one of the reasons is it means you collect all the evidence along the way, but it also means you maximize the possibility that somebody is going to cooperate with you. And you never know when, you know, probably not Jim Jordan, but somebody like a Jim Jordan or a Mark Meadows is going to look at the situation that they're in and decide that the only way out for them is to cut a deal with the government. And the only way they get the benefit of that deal is to tell everything that they know, to tell the truth. Because if they start to cooperate and they're caught lying, that means they lose their entire deal and they face all the penalties of the law. So once somebody starts cooperating, if they want to get whatever it is, a, a lighter sentence or some sort of favorable treatment, they have to tell the whole truth. And that's how prosecutors end up being able to prove the state of mind of somebody at the top of the food chain. And the bottom of the food chain were the people he charged with the misdemeanors on January 6th and the riot there. 
gave them lighter sentences, but presumably got them to cooperate and started pointing upward. You know, I've been thinking about that, and I'm not sure that that's true. That would be true if this was one big conspiracy. If, if this was like your typical drug case where you had folks out on the street who were selling some sort of drugs that had been, you know, starting with the drug kingpin, had been sold down through the chain of distribution until it reached those people on the street. I'm not entirely sure that that works here for the folks who who stormed the Capitol. I think that there may be a little bit of a disconnect where we see some of the, you know, we see those low-level misdemeanor cases working on up. We now see members of the Oath Keepers and, and some of those other groups being charged with conspiracy. And there's a question as to how far those groups go. You know, do they go up to, who knows, a Steve Bannon or a Roger Stone? And is there a direct link that goes all the way, you know, straight into the Oval Office? It occurs to me that it's possible that there are two different conspiracies, that there could be a conspiracy involving the big lie and trying to interfere with the uh, certification of the election at that level. And there could be a separate conspiracy involving these folks in the cases we see in progress. And of course, it's always possible that prosecutors could investigate and come up empty-handed. They could, for whatever reason, be unable to prove a, a, a conspiracy, to prove the agreement, or to prove other crimes. Sometimes conduct is lawful but awful, and that's always um, hard to take when it's a situation that you are really passionate about. But I think we have to be willing to live with the law if we want to remain a rule-of-law country. Yeah. No, no, no. It sounded good, right? I mean, we all want to see accountability, but none of us wants to become a banana republic country at the end of of it either. So what do, what has to be proven here? What has to be shown? What are the possible charges that may be charged against, say, uh, Meadows, say, Bannon, say, Trump? You know, and, and is there anything where they get enough evidence and they make the case where most Americans go like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's what we're hoping for, right? That that a good chunk of Americans, the ones that aren't completely brainwashed, will go, okay, okay, it was um, this was a conspiracy to stay in office, and there were there were a lot of conspiring. Yeah, well, that's the more difficult question, right? So I'll start there. There's a real risk that instead of creating some sort of a common narrative, that a prosecution could maybe drive a wedge further apart in the country. And I'm sure that this has to weigh heavily on the folks at, at DOJ. They don't want to, you know, really light the match that sets the powder keg off. And so what happens if Trump gets indicted and his supporters, you know, are uh, riled up to uh, again engage in some kind of violent opposition? The problem is that if you're DOJ, what you really have to focus on primarily is the facts and the law and how you do your cases in the appropriate way, given the law. But I think we have to be plain spoken about the fact that there's some risk here. And that's maybe one of the reasons that it's valuable to have this congressional process where the January 6th committee will share the really impressive narrative that they're developing with the country. It's, it sounds like they plan on doing that later this year. And so maybe you are able to develop more consensus along the way, but it's never going to be complete. 
Well, what is the actual criminal charge? What are the range of those? What could Trump be charged with from the evidence that comes out of January 6th and from the evidence that the DOJ is gathering? I think the key to answering that question is to, um, you know, and I suspect that you view it the same way that I do, that January 6th was sort of the last desperate grasp at power. And that at least since the election, maybe even earlier because Trump had been floating that narrative about how the election would be fraudulent if he lost, but there's this entire course of conduct that happens over a period of weeks and months that's designed essentially at preventing the certification of Joe Biden's win. And so the question that prosecutors will have to answer is whether or not there's a conspiracy to interfere with government involved in that conduct. And they would have to prove that there was an agreement to uh, achieve this sort of illegal objective, however they wanted to characterize it, of interfering um, with important government functions. Well, they they certainly were trying to do that. I mean, they were tr- that, that, that was their goal going into that day without the uh, riot. Without and so what storming. prosecutors have to do is back up. The, I mean, that's what we all conclude, right? We watched it happen in real time. It seems um, pretty plain. Prosecutors now have to sort of dissect the known facts and figure out what's admissible in court, right? You can't, for for instance, you can't offer hearsay testimony, but there's lots of great video and stuff like the call with Raffensperger. You still have to prove if you're going to charge conspiracy, which I think is one of the most productive charges here. You have to prove that an agreement was made by two or more people. You've got to prove the agreement, prove who the people were, prove their intent to enter into that conspiracy and and achieve its objectives. You have to prove some of the steps that they took to get there. So these are not insurmountable steps. They're just critical steps in determining whether or not you have sufficient evidence to bring the charges. And of course, there are a lot of other possible charges that people have talked about. I think the 1512 obstruction charge, this is obstruction with official proceedings, the certification of the election. That looks like a a possibility that they should be looking at along with some of the election-related charges. Other folks have suggested that they should use a statute called RICO that's typically used for organized crime. I'm a little bit less bullish on that one. I think it provides some complications that are unnecessary on appeal, Um, but that's certainly a possible charge as well. I just kind of want to figure out what that we know of already does qualify as a crime just on the face of it. For example, let me ask you this. The president not acting for over three hours to stop this thing, right? Mm-hmm. That seems criminal to me because he was allowing this violence that he watched going on, that he actually, people were urging him to stop it. There's no question about that. Um, that. He let it go for three hours, over three hours. People got killed during that period. Is there a crime there? Can you make a case that that's a crime? The, the waiting three hours to say something? This is such a great question because a lot of people have focused on these facts. And, and, you know, um, 
the way our system works, obviously, is that Congress passes laws and, and they decide what crimes are and they decide what elements prosecutors have to prove to establish each crime. And this notion of inaction as a crime is something that really exists only in a very narrow way in our legal system. Typically, uh, it arises when you owe a duty and fail to perform, but that happens most often in the regulatory system. You know, there's, there's an old case called PAC that involves somebody that knew that the factories where they were producing food were infested with rats and all sorts of nasty stuff and that they were not doing what they were obligated to do to meet the regulations. And so there was a prosecution that resulted from a failure to act, not an act. I think it's tough to take Trump's inaction here and turn it into a crime, but it's incredibly valuable evidence because it seems to prove that he intended the outcome of interfering with the certification of the election. And if you place that in the middle of my proposed conspiracy crime, and if you can prove the agreement, that's a separate issue, right? And you've got to figure out when people got together and planned to do this. But then you can show that he intended the outcome. He intended interference with this, this government function because he had the ability to stop it and he didn't. But but you know he intended to do it because he intended to do it. I mean he he tried to convince Pence to uh not accept the the, the ballots, right? That's going to be interesting um to prove that you know the direct testimony or the direct evidence would be Mike Pence's testimony. And I think that there's a significant question of whether Pence will ever tell the truth about that. And then you're left with the question of, are there emails? Did Pence have conversations with people? Of course, hearsay conversations aren't admissible evidence in court. So you'd have to find something else that you could get in to prove that sort of conduct. So, uh, it was, was, weren't there people in the meetings with Pence? I mean, wasn't there anybody you know, with Trump and Pence? I don't think Pence? we know the answer to that. And, and this is why I find it so easy to be an armchair prosecutor and so tough to be an actual prosecutor making a charging decision. You have to answer all these questions that you're raising. Who is there with him? Who's willing to testify? Is their testimony admissible or is it hearsay? Are there documents that would help prove this? You have to go through all those possibilities and you have to end up with admissible evidence that proves everything you've got to prove to convict on that crime and it's got to be not just speculation. It's got to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I understand all of that. What I'm trying to figure out is what do you have to prove? What rises to something where you can say, oh, that's a crime? I mean, uh, I, I know you have to prove it. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you say is the crime you have to prove. But what here rises to a crime? Because clearly, clearly his intention was... Uh, to you know, he publicly said that he was disappointed that Pence wasn't going to do this, right? Exactly. And so, what you have to do, and it's sort of a weird little dance that you do as a prosecutor. You have some ideas going into the investigation about what sort of crimes you're looking at. Sometimes that's the crime you end up at. 
Other times the evidence will lead you in a different sort of a direction. And so you've got to make sure that you know, you know, crimes are broken out into elements. For every crime, you have to prove the act that's the crime and the state of mind that the person had. Easy example, for murder, you have to prove that your defendant killed somebody and that they intended to kill them, right? That's the act and the state of mind together. Well, for all of these other crimes, whether it's conspiracy or interfering with government operations or, you know, inciting uh, an insurrection or a seditious conspiracy, you have that same thing. You've got to prove a certain set of acts and they have to be committed with a certain state of mind. And so prosecutors are very meticulous. And I think that's why it's difficult to answer the question that you're asking with precision, because we all saw a lot of conduct take place in, in public. The question is, what are prosecutors doing with that? Are they finding ways to prove that admissibly in a courtroom? And, and you know, you can't prove three elements from one crime and four elements from the other. You've got to prove every element for each crime that you have to charge, which is why it can be very frustrating when you see really horrible conduct and you come up empty-handed. But I don't think that that's the case here. I think we've seen enough conduct in public that it suggests that prosecutors certainly have what they need to go ahead and investigate full force, which is, of course, what Merrick Garland committed to last week. All we have to do is convict these people of one crime each, right? I mean, in other words, you can't you get evidence <laughs> that... You know, what you're saying, you can't do three things in this one, four things in this one. But can't you, if you're only charging one of those, can't some of the evidence from the other charge be used to bolster and prove the one you're going with? So the answer I know you'll be delighted to know is it depends. Um, and that's one of the reasons that prosecutors like to charge a conspiracy, because typically the rules of evidence are more lenient about the kinds of evidence that can come in to prove a conspiracy. But often you'll see prosecutors charge multiple counts, and that will give them the ability to offer evidence on all of them. What, what do you know from you know, just the leaks of Meadows or the material that Meadows did give the committee and other stuff like, what was the name of the guy who wrote the strategy for? Eastman. Eastman. What do you know from what we've seen thus far that there is a likely route to go to to charge? And, and you sound like you're going toward conspiracy. I think conspiracy um, it is certainly, you know, when you hear about people getting together and planning to do something that's illegal, in my judgment, um, planning to overthrow an election is illegal, right? So if there's a plan to do that, then I think you're starting by looking at the conspiracy charges. And of course, the defense is, no, 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 what we were doing was not illegal. Uh, we believe that this was lawfully within the president's powers to do this, which is why these charges are going to always come down to questions of intent and and what people intended and, and what they thought, which makes these incredibly tricky sorts of charges to bring. Now, I think, you know, the diagnosis of malignant narcissist, um, I think has been a, has pretty stuck pretty well. 
I don't think there's anything we've seen <laughs> since that. That was very early on, right? In in his no presidency, or, right? That sort of smacked you in the face very early. Which I think that at a certain point reaches a level of insanity. I mean, I, I really do. I like. I I think he seems like a malignant narcissist from everything I've described, and an extreme one. And so. I mean, I don't think he'll plead insanity, but if I were his defense attorney, I'd say, of course he thought he won. <laughs> I think that you're right. He, he's I mean, nuts. <laughs> you know, you're I mean? <laughs> exactly in the sweet spot there, right? I mean, there's not an, not an insanity defense. He didn't know the difference between right from wrong. But what they would, if it got to the point where he was charged and was facing a trial or plea agreement decision, I think you're correct that the defense would be some species of, no, he, he believed that he had won the election. He believed that a fraud was being committed against him, and he was bent on, on you know, disclosing that fraud and setting things right. You know my client. He's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen him for all this time. I sat through the argument this morning in the civil case that Mary Trump has brought against her uncle and her aunt Marianne, who's a former federal judge. And that's they robbed her of her inheritance. Exactly. That, yeah, the yeah. charges <laughs> that they, you know, that they cheated her out of her inheritance. I think it's that they valued the assets at $30 million when in fact they were worth a billion. But essentially the the defense, and this was a preliminary motion to dismiss, but what the lawyers for Trump seemed to be saying was she was on notice that we were going to cheat her. So she should have always been checking up, even though she was 16 and we were her trustees. It was a really sort of a shocking argument and very on brand for Trump. Wow. And does that wash? I think that <laughs> the judge who um, had really, I, I thought, just a, a fabulous demeanor and was very meticulous about going through um the charges and and uh, sort of what the the grounds for the motion to dismiss were. It didn't seem like he was particularly impressed. I mean, if I were the judge, I would have done a take. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been, well. He gets whoa. to write an opinion, so we'll have to see, right? <laughs> okay, that's his take. But gee whiz, that's that's okay. So let's go. Let's go to all these things <laughs> on the. I'm sorry, uh, that's my fault. I pulled you down the garden path there. No, no, let's go to, it's, it's about time we did this, and we can go back if we want to, because I'm still, I still want him uh, to be convicted of something and go to, you know, just at least be this. I don't, I, don't, I don't even care if he goes to prison. I just want to be convicted and never have be able to do anything again. You know, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Well, I want him I, to convicted. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say I wanted to see him held accountable. For, mm -hmm. for what he did. I'm, I'm very nervous. Y you know, I remember those chants of, of locker up during the 2016 election. And I'm very nervous about us becoming that. And I think what we should be hoping for is that DOJ will conduct a thorough, meticulous investigation and that they will charge whoever should be charged in what we saw happen during the 2020 election. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, just out of personal vengeance, I want to see this guy who put the country through so much charged. 
I want to see him charged if he should be. I think, frankly, the country taught him a lesson. He he did not win the 2020 election. And Joe Biden has become increasingly forceful in calling him out as the defeated former president. Oh, my God. And you know what? I, 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 let, let's go to Mary Trump. Let's go to the state stuff. But one thing people don't bring up enough, I think, is that after he lost by three million popular votes to Hillary, he also claimed that was fraud. And he had a commission. <laughs> Remember that? To find the so three million votes. I remember votes. <laughs> it really well because one of my very good friends, a probate judge in Jefferson County, Alabama, where I live, was on that commission. And, and although Judge King is a lifelong Democrat, he's just a straight up the middle kind of guy. Probate judges run elections in Alabama. So when he was asked to be on this commission, you know, I just sort of said, are, are you crazy? They're looking for voter fraud. And he said, no, 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 we're just going to go in and talk about making elections work better. And I have a lot of concerns about funding elections properly and getting our infrastructure up to snuff. And I think the point that you're driving it is that that commission worked for several months and then it had to fold because it could not find any evidence of significant fraud. I mean, Voter fraud has never been the problem in this country. The problem is voter suppression, efforts by Republicans to keep people who are qualified to vote from voting or make it as hard as possible for them to vote. Of course, it's minuscule, minuscule, the instances. And, and, and even when like they've been looking for it here, the ones I've seen were voted for Trump. Remember the guy in Colorado? who they think murdered his wife and then cast her absentee <laughs> ballot, ballot for Trump. Yes. That feels very like a Trump voter, doesn't it? And then there's, I think, some some suggestion that some folks in the villages down in Florida also voted fraudulently. That's right. In the wake of the commission that, that you mentioned, the Trump U.S. attorney in North Carolina charged some voter fraud cases. And I tracked those cases for a while. It was a, a very small number. Most of them turned out to be misdemeanors. And the most serious case that they charged involved this guy who had become a citizen, but apparently there was one last step that he didn't take. He had done all the paperwork. He thought he was a citizen. There was some sort of minor mistake. And then he registered to vote. They let him register. He openly voted with his family, this proud new citizen, and they charged him. And as it turned out, I think that they ended up pleading that case either to some sort of administrative or, or misdemeanor charges. I mean, that was the best stuff that they could find. Yeah, in obviously, the whole he thought was he ludicrous. was voting legally. There's one in Texas like that. There's one in Texas. That's one, a terrible case. The woman who five year sentence because she thought she was entitled to vote and she made a mistake. Yeah. And she had some kind of she had 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 a record and was let out early on probation and she violated her probation by thinking she could <laughs> vote now they put her in prison because they want to show that voter fraud is serious in texas so they made an example out of her they're awful people aren't they yeah those are bad cases and i i hope that there's justice for her down the road god they're bad people we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back with joyce vance this episode 
is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. We're back with Joyce Vance. Uh, let's go back to New York. So we've New got York. we've got uh, the Manhattan DA, which is criminal. We've got uh, we've got uh, civil suits. Uh, is that what they call for New York uh, AG? Yes. So they, let, go through those, and and when are they going to be indicted? What, or you don't know, but I mean, what what do you think? You really are pushing my crystal ball to the limits tonight. Okay. Well, I um, I, I, I backed off right away. <laughs> no, you know, we've got a brand new district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, uh, who is an experienced prosecutor who takes over from Cy Vance, the longtime Manhattan DA who had just retired. Yep. And what is believed about those investigations in Manhattan is that the focus is on how Trump valued his business property. So these aren't charges related to the election. These are about longtime business practices. This is like the Michael Cohn testimony where he overvalued when he was trying to borrow money against it and exaggerate his wealth and then undervalued when paying taxes on it. Exactly. And so, you know, his, his CFO is already under indictment. There's been a lot of work going on in that grand jury. If I was going to read some tea leaves here, uh, Cy Vance brought in a really good experienced prosecutor to work on this case. And that prosecutor, Mark Pomerantz, is still with the DA's office. You know, if that case, if they had decided that they couldn't charge Trump or that they were at the end of the road, you'd expect to see somebody like that who was brought in to work on the case leaving the DA's office and going back into private practice where he was making a mint of money compared to where he is now. The fact that he's re remained in place and, and other folks in that office who are working the case appear to still be working on it, that suggests to me that they are still hard at work on that matter. Good. I mean, it's it seems, doesn't it? Is that that hard to prove? Can, I mean, aren't isn't there a paper trail saying, you valued this property at 10 times what you valued it when you were uh, paying taxes on it 
when you're borrowing money? You know, these kind of valuation cases can be difficult because there is some legitimate sort of scope for why valuations might be different. So you really need somebody who can explain the case. That's why they pushed Weisselberg so hard before they indicted him to be the witness. There have been reports now that they sort of have zeroed him out and they're prosecuting him that they've reached out to some of Trump's outside people, an outside accountant, one of the bankers at Deutsche Bank who was involved in lending. And so there's still, it seems to me, either they're looking for that witness or maybe they've found that witness and and they're working with them. But when you've got to go through all these financial documents, you need somebody that can explain them to you. That person is really your key witness. Okay. And, and he's not cooperating, uh, Weisselberg. I should say the last thing we know is that he's not. So th- that's, that's the uh, Manhattan DA. Right. Uh, what about uh, the... AG. So the AG is looking at civil implications of these same things. It's worth saying that in New York, the attorney general doesn't have independent criminal authority. She can't just open a criminal case like this on her own unless she gets a request from one of the DAs or another state agency. It's sort of a complicated system. But she has joined forces with the Manhattan DA's office to some extent and is working with them on the criminal case, as well as proceeding with her own civil case, you'll recall that she drew some fire from Trump, and he had said that she should be uh, forced to not work on on that criminal case and, and to relinquish her civil investigation because she had been so outspoken about him when she was running for re-election. She had you know, said that she was running for election so that she could take him down and, and made statements that he said showed bias. Sure. <laughs> okay. Does that hold? Does that hold any water? I mean, or other than public opinion? I mean, what is it? I don't. I don't think that gets her <laughs> I mean, removed from the cases. <laughs> um, you know, I suspect she wishes now that she had been a little bit more circumspect. Oh, Donald Trump says she should resign from the thing. I think yeah. that's probably. Oh man, that's powerful. But the question, there's a serious question here, right, would be whether a judge at some point would find that she had done something improper. And I just don't think her conduct crosses that line. But I bet you that when she runs for re-election for her next race, she'll be a little bit more careful. All right. So uh, what didn't we? uh, We haven't talked about Georgia, have we? No, I I love that thing because you mean the Raffensperger uh, conversation. What I really, and I've said this before uh, on the podcast, but I, what I really think is funny about that whole thing is just the idea that Trump thought that Raffensberger might do it. And <laughs> the idea of Raffensberger having a press conference where he goes, uh, <clears throat> I'm a uh, secretary of, uh, State Brad Raffensperger, and um, there's been a change in the totals, um, and the winner by one vote (laughs) (laughs) is Donald Trump. (laughs) Was there a recount? Uh, No, we just found some. (laughs) I mean, what? What could that? How did Trump think he was going to do that? That, Your Honor, he was crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> See, really, I want to be a defense attorney. <laughs> I, 
I think he might be the best defense attorney he could get at this point. Me? <laughs> you. I mean, that's what what else is the defense, right? This Georgia stuff, it has always seemed to me is the the easiest place to prove a crime. It seems I'll just say remarkable cuz my mom always told me not to swear in public. Um it seems remarkable that we're going to let a district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, bear the full burden of convicting a corrupt former president of the United States. Uh, but, you know, it looks that way. And Fannie Willis, you could do a lot worse. She's a smart, tough prosecutor. Um, she gives every appearance that she's been methodically investigating this case, even though it's a very high stakes case that involves an attack on our democracy, not the sort of case you normally investigate when you're a district attorney. And, and she's indicated that she's looking at impaneling a special grand jury to do the investigation. And this is unusual. This is, you know, you, you have the normal grand jury that you use to indict cases. A special grand jury is actually an investigative tool. They're impaneled for a long period of time. They can help you gather evidence and evaluate it. And a special grand jury releases a, a final report on the evidence um, that helps you determine what charges are appropriate. So this is a really interesting process that she's undertaking, and it suggests that she believes that she's got something going on there. And is this something that she could hand over to Garland? I mean, this is, I, mean, I, I don't know how that works. So, you know, her jurisdiction is different. She's looking at a, a Georgia statute that makes it illegal to interfere with an election. The federal statute is in some ways similar, in some ways more expansive. I think the federal charge would involve making a request to tabulate votes that you know are fraudulent. The evidence that she's collecting is certainly evidence that I would want to have if I was a federal prosecutor looking at the federal charges. But to be honest, if if I'm uh, the district attorney in Fulton County and I put my case together and I want to go ahead and charge it, you know, I'm going to tell DOJ to stay out of my business that they had their chance and they didn't take their shot. Is is part of this case the threat that he made? Because he basically says, if you don't do this, you could be in trouble. He does. He, you know, it's it's the weirdest phone call because <laughs> he tries to cajole, he tries to flatter, he tries to. He threaten, also says, you know. "Give me a break." <laughs> I mean, it's it is just crazy talk. Um, and so I'm sure she'll look at all of the possible charges, but at at bottom, what this comes down to is an effort to interfere with the results of Georgia's election an effort to interfere with Georgia voters' ability to elect the candidate of their choice. But even if he thought he had won, okay, which, again, crazy, that's my defense, I could buy that if I'm a jury. <laughs> he thought he, was, he won because he's kind of crazy, because he's crazy. You can be crazy and still be criminally liable, right? There are different standards in different states. Yeah, but, but states. you're it's talking about the thing of did he believe he – did he know he lost or did he believe he lost? And I'm saying yeah. he's crazy enough to have believed he won. 
against Fair all enough. And evidence. That, and that's what that I'm goes just, back to proving that element of intent that, that, and whether or not that's what I was maybe he about. didn't have the intent. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you can't prove that, but you can prove that he was trying to threaten him, and that's illegal, isn't it? Well, again, it's a matter of what does the statute say and does his conduct go far enough? This is my recollection is that there was an implicit threat that if he um, didn't go along with this, that bad things might happen to him, that Trump might call him out for crimes. I'm frankly not sure that that goes far enough to be any sort of a crime. It's really good evidence of the election fraud charge. Not positive that that's enough to be any sort of crime standing on its own. I don't know. I think they should bring me in to help. To me, it's both, I think, a a violation of Georgia law Mm -hmm. and and being charged in Fulton County. But also, I mean, that's that's impeachable, I think. I mean, I I agree with you. That's the most, that's a smoking gun. Yeah. No, or or what? What? what, What's his defense going to be? His state of mind, or something? (laughs) Was like, I'm just what? What? What could that be? I suppose that's one possibility because to prove these crimes, and and particularly, you know, there's maybe potentially a federal election law crime lurking too. But you have to prove, at least in the federal crime, that he actually knew what he was doing was a crime, and that turns on. What did he really think? Did he believe that he had won the election and that they were stealing it from him? He would be wrong if he believed that, but maybe he really did. That seems extremely unlikely to me. And certainly he knew he had lost and he was just trying to find a way to, um, you know, drag it out. But the problem is for a criminal prosecution, you don't ever get to say, oh, everybody knows that or that's logically what was going on. You have to prove it with admissible evidence. You have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to convince a jury and then you have to get a three judge court of appeals to agree that you, you know, did everything right. And ultimately something like this would, I'm sure, go to the Supreme Court. So everything has to be done in a, in a really immaculate fashion for this to work. Okay, well, since you were a U.S. attorney, how would you go about doing that? Because I think anybody listening to that uh, knows that just instinctively (laughs) that he uh, knows that he didn't win that race. Um, But how do you prove that, that he knew that? It, It seems like it's easier to get to he's crazy than it is to he absolutely knew that he he lost. So it's never easy to prove um, somebody's state of mind, but prosecutors do it, you know, every day in cases across the country. You've got two options, basically. You can use direct evidence or you can use circumstantial evidence. And what that would mean here is I'm just going to come up with an example that's sort of silly and not something that's on the table. But let's say that Jared Kushner flips on his father-in-law, and he's willing to testify that he had a conversation with Trump in which Trump said to him, listen, we both know that I lost the election, but let's go ahead and come up with a scheme. You and I will agree right here that we're going to have a plan, and we're going to steal the election, and here's all the things that we're going to do to steal it. Direct evidence that he knew he had lost the election. But there's also circumstantial evidence. And the the way that I always like to think about that is direct evidence is 
if you watch snow come down out of the sky, then you know that it snowed. If there's no snow on the ground and you go to sleep at night and you wake up the next morning and there's snow on the ground, that's circumstantial evidence that it snowed. Now, you might defeat that evidence by saying that somebody pulled up a a big snowmaker and and put snow all over the lawn, but as long as you can prove that nothing like that happened, your circumstantial evidence that it snowed is really good. And so you can see how that would play out in a situation with Trump. You know, what kind of things was he saying and doing? That means it's essential that you interview all the people that he was in frequent contact with, including some of these mopes who we now know were doing things like planning to overtake the Justice Department or circulate the PowerPoint coup plan. So what what is the timing? I mean, we, we have some clocks ticking. For example, oh, 2024. Yeah, the only clock that prosecutors care about is the statute of limitations. And that's a matter of state and or federal law. How long do you have from the time the acts were committed to prosecute? And that is, you know, I promise you, I've been in this situation where you're investigating somebody who you know is going to run for re-election or for election. And that's just not your lane as a prosecutor. You don't get into that lane. That's politics, not prosecution. Okay, but can't you just kind of keep it in mind? No, you really can't, and it would be you can't. wrong, and good prosecutors don't do that. Okay, because, you know, you could win. <laughs> I know, and it gets worse, Al, because you know what prosecutors don't do, federal prosecutors, is by policy, we're forbidden from uh, indicting a case too close to an election. Oh, gosh. <laughs> there is that, Right. So I've been thinking about how that could come into play with the midterms and the fact that if we don't see a prosecution by, you know, take your pick, um, July, August, September, that if there's going to be a prosecution, we won't see it until after the midterm elections. So that clock is, in fact, ticking. Okay, but then that's still two years away from 24. So no one's going to say, hey, is this too close to 24? I think that's right. What do you think the timeline is? When do you think we'll see? You don't know, first of all. I'm giving you that wide berth. But when do you think it'll happen? You know, it obviously, as you say, it's just speculation. Um, new DA in Manhattan, he's going to want to take some time to get his arms around the issues. But if they're close on this case and they give some signs that they're close, it's not unreasonable to expect that we would see an indictment this year. Let me put it in context for you, though. These cases look so easy. They are not easy. And it's not uncommon for this sort of a case to take um, really years for prosecutors to put together, three, four, five years. I ended up early in my tenure as as U.S. attorney. We tried a pretty significant public corruption case that involved uh, a, a whole bunch of local politicians who had been on a county commission. My predecessor had opened that case. She really wanted to finish it off, but it took years to get it from the point where they first learned that there was criminal conduct to investigate, to indict, to get it to trial. These are not fast-moving targets. And that goes back to something that you said. You know, our, our criminal justice system is by intent, slow and deliberate. Our political system is not. 
And when political actors, when the president misbehaves, he can be held accountable through impeachment or other mechanisms. And the real problem here is that the Senate didn't have the will to hold Trump accountable. When all of this was on the table after January 6th, they gave him a pass. I, I hope to get Jamie Raskin. I don't know if I, I will have asked. I believe he thought that they may all go for it. Because it seemed pretty obvious, but yeah. Um, but that's impeachment. He's such a is, fine constitutional scholar, and it seems to me that everybody who loves the Constitution just, you know, had a, a moment of personal crisis when they realized that senators were going to give Trump a pass. McConnell's uh, speech was ridiculous, though, because he basically said, you know, there's no doubt that he misled his people and caused the insurrection, but I voted to acquit. He's extraordinarily good at talking out of both sides of his mouth and not getting called on it. Oh, or getting called on it and it just not make any difference to him. Yeah, just barreling on ahead. Um, well, thanks. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me uh, on. You know, I'm really sorry I can't give you the answers you want on some of these, is he going to get prosecuted um, questions. But I think it's worth emphasizing that we are a rule of law country and we've got to listen to our better angels. Yeah. Yeah. It's just All hard right. sometimes. Okay. Okay. I guess so. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.